Hi there, and welcome to Product Storyteller. My name is Stuart Noyce, and this is my personal podcast, where I dive into stories of and about product innovation, the crucially important process that satisfies unmet need with unique value. From the origins of the internet to the future of crypto platforms, from Haas MBA classmates to Burning Man makers, I cover the ground where entrepreneurs and business leaders create new value with a wisdom that ensures our shared future. Product Storyteller explores the durable edge of free market capitalism, where people practice restraint and live in community with one another. If you love it, give it a great review and subscribe on iTunes or elsewhere to catch every interview that's coming. This week, my exceptional guest is Tom Lyon, serial entrepreneur and internet legend, who takes us on a journey to the leading edge of distributed computing. This is a very special interview for Product Storyteller, as it explores the origins of our current IT economy from an engineer's point of view. For software to take over the world, Tom and his cohort had to lay the foundation of Unix and TCP IP. And his cohort is impressive, including Ken Thompson, Eric Schmidt, and Bill Joy. These brilliant technologists wrote reliable and efficient software for their own use, enabling the many products we use today. Perhaps it shouldn't be a surprise then that the entrepreneurs who disrupted networking 40 years ago would be the same ones to commoditize it today. Tom now builds the kind of next generation products that the Cisco's of the world can monetize, which gives his companies excellent acquisition exits. His current focus is DriveScale, a company he founded with Satya Nishtala in 2013 to commoditize the endless server SKUs from Dell, HP, and others. With DriveScale, one can create, deploy, and adapt servers on the fly to meet the demands and distributed nature of containerized applications. It's a perfect match for Kubernetes. This interview puts you in the mind of an engineer who has repeatedly broken down the walls between networks and systems. From the origins of Unix and the Internet to the virtual machines that run all of IT today, we cover it all. I hope you enjoy the trip. So hi there, uh, this is Stuart Noyce, and I am here with Tom Lyon who uh, is at DriveScale, and we're actually at the, uh, the DriveScale office. And uh, Tom, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Well, I'm Tom Lyon. I'm a founder here at DriveScale, but I've been around Silicon Valley for a long time now, 41 years. This is my fifth startup, depending on, depending on how you count. Um, and I've got the, the startup fever in my blood, <laughs> so it, it's, it's hard to stay in retirement. Fair enough. And so what, we're going to take you through the five profile questions that I love to ask. And uh, the first one is really, you know, what, what uh, problem are you trying to solve with all these startups? Well, I'm an engineer at heart, and I like to fix things and make things better. And uh, that's really kind of what it's all about. And I, I think I get it from my father and had a huge family, and a lot of us kids ended up with this disease. <laughs> um, but uh, it's just a kick to, to see things work and see things, see so, your work make, make things better in some way. Right. So uh, that would imply then that you have a, kind of a fix-it gene. How, what, what would you say is your, you know, your special, uh, special sauce there you know, that you bring to all of this? Well, I think my, my superpower, if, yeah. if you want to call it, is the ability to see and remember stupid details about lots of complex systems and then I can see how to take a big mess and make it make it better. Good. Okay, so then what does that mean for you in terms of the kind of work that you do or I would say the the kind of solutions that you bring to the world? 
Yeah, usually the, the stuff I do tends to violate layering, right? So you get these artificial boundaries, say, between you know, server people and networking people, and it creates complexity because neither of them wants to tread on the other domain until somebody comes along and says, well, wait, if you just connect to A to B, then everything gets simpler and people are much happier. Okay, and, and your ability to do this um, paid you in what way? You had jobs, uh, you, you, know, you said you worked in startups, so you get paid to work in the startup, but what, you also get upside through the stock options, that sort of yeah, thing? Yeah, it's all about stock. Um, I, I mean, I, I guess I could get a high paying salary somewhere, but I don't like big companies at all. Um, I'm, a, I'm, you know, in spite of my podcast appearances, I'm a huge introvert. So, you know, <laughs> if I have to deal with more than 10 people on a daily basis, it's, it's difficult. Fair enough. Okay, so let's go back in time, and, and if you could pick one, maybe one thing that you've done in the, you know, over the 41 years that just really defines you and, and uh, you're really super proud of, what would it be? Wow, that's a tough one. Um, my, my, you know, my biggest 15 minutes of fame or whatever was with Ypsilon Networks, where we were combining IP networking with ATM networking. And of course, most people today don't know what ATM was, but I explained that it's, it's, it's the kind of ATM you only put money into. <laughs> it's still, that's still way too vague for, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but yeah. But, you know, the, but it was a classic layer violation thing. I, I sure. came along and said, you know, what if we threw out all the ATM routing and just used IP routing instead? And uh, it led to a much, much simpler architecture. Okay, so where are you going now? What's the, what's, what's the next 12 months? You know, what are you gonna, what are you gonna get accomplished well, over this the, time? With DriveScale, you know, I view our mission as making servers simpler. Uh, servers have grown up into these incredibly complicated platforms with all kinds of options that you add in and blah, blah, blah. And, and the trouble is you end up with 100 different types of servers in your data center and you can't move workloads between them because they're all slightly different. So that, that's just a disaster for cloud type operations. And so my mission is to get rid of all the options of servers and Put, put the options on the network where, where they belong. Okay. Well, that's, uh, that's a theme. Yeah. It's a theme, and that's where you've been. So, hey, well, let's, let's dive into now how this all started. So you told me that you have a double ECS degree from Princeton, right. but then you go into Unix, and how did you make that transition into Unix? And was that immediate? Did they hire you right away, or did you find your way into Unix? Well, uh, when I was a freshman at Princeton, this is 1970. 75. Uh, we got the first, we, we, we brought up Unix on a little PDP-11 in the AA department. And 1975, 1975. This was version 6 Unix. And there were about 100 universities worldwide that got a hold of that from Bell Labs. And so we were kind of in the middle of that wave, um, even though Princeton was very close to Bell Labs, both physically and, you know, whatever. Lots of people in common. Mm -hmm. Um, so were they looking to you, uh, to Princeton, for um, talent to help them with it? Or was it more of that Princeton was bringing it in so that they could learn from it? Just the, the, the latter. But there, there was a lot of people, you know, professors and, you know, summer students, that kind of stuff going back and forth. Um, <clears throat> and so the, I'll tell you what really got me into Unix, though. Yeah. Uh, was the Princeton Computer Center at, at, at that time 
was operating a timesharing service for the state of New Jersey, and that was the timesharing service for Princeton students as well. But the state, state of New Jersey decided to pull out of that agreement, so there was a void of what should we use for timesharing. And <clears throat> there were a gang of us who had been happy with the tiny little PDP-11 running Unix who were agitating for, let's get a big <laughs> PDP-11 running Unix. Um, when IBM got wind of that, they said, no, 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 here, have, a, have another IBM computer for free, because uh, Princeton was a very high-profile IBM site. And so that was... And that not was, terribly far away from IBM, I mean, location, right? Right. Um, but we were going to run VM370, virtual machines were invented by IBM for the 370s. And foolish me, I said, well, Unix is written in a high-level language. Mm. IBM has virtual machines. Why don't we just move Unix to the IBM? <laughs> How did that go? Well, uh, it kind of died down for a few months. But then that summer, Eric Schmidt, you know, the Eric Schmidt we all know from Google, um, he was also at Princeton two years ahead of me. He spent the summer at Bell Labs as an intern. He learned that Bell Labs had a compiler for the C language for the IBM 370. And so when he learned that, he remembered what I said, and he called me up before school started in the, in, in the fall and said, Tom, are you serious about wanting to move Unix to the 370? If you want to, I can get the compiler out of Bell Labs. And so he I did, I did, we did. We, there were a team of us then uh, that started the port, and that get, really got me into Unix because I had to understand it top and bottom. Yeah, sure, sure. And so were you focused just on the kernel or you know, the rest of the, the libraries and, and everything on top of it? Mostly we did the kernel. Um, it, it was back in the day when Unix was not portable per se. Mm. And so that was very interesting. Um, not quite yet. And, but the real problem was the, the development environment was atrocious because there was basically no communication between the PDP-11 where the source was and the 370 where we wanted to test things. It was painful, very painful. So, so it actually took two years before I could demonstrate a kernel on the 370. So a little more challenging at first than, than originally thought, but right. a step along the way. Did that lead you to Amdahl at some point then? Okay, so this is, this is the really fun part. So <laughs> I went up to interview with Bell Labs for a summer position. And of course, I knew about the central Unix group. You know, they were part of computer science research. But the, re the true research divisions didn't hire as many summer students. So getting in there was, was really hard. So I ended up interviewing with another uh, section but the guy who was going to be my manager invited Ken Thompson down to lunch. <laughs> the, to, to the, the, the Ken Thompson. Yeah. To, to impress the, uh, the kid. <laughs> uh, and I started telling Ken about my work with porting Unix to the 370. And fortuitously, they were about to port, port Unix to an interdata machine, which was basically a copy of the 370. So I spent the rest of my interview day with Ken and the group talking to them, and I ended up in that group for the summer. Wow, what a, great, uh, what a great summer job. Yeah. So here's the second part of the great story. <laughs> I'm sitting in the Unix room with Ken and some other people. Ken gets a phone call from a friend of a friend of his who's working in Amdahl. And uh, here, you know, the Amdahl campus is about two blocks from where we are right now. Um, anyway, so this guy, John Hiles from Amdahl, says, talks to Ken and says, 
Uh, my friend Denny says, you may know something about uh, Unix for the 370. And Ken says, you know, hold on, talk to Tom. And <laughs> hands me the phone. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. And so. That's how you build teams, right? You say, oh, here's the, give it to the kid. Yeah. It's the next, the next so, step along but, the way. But classic right place at the right time stuff. Absolutely. I had another year of school to finish. <laughs> But we, I stayed in contact with Amdahl. They actually brought me out. We did the formal interviews, and they brought me out again for a week of consulting where I brought out Unix, and then it was. So uh, before we move on, what's the thing that, about Unix that you really, even to this day, remember being um, special about it? And, and why was it such a, an important step along the way in computing? The key thing about Unix, I think, is that it's software designed by people who wanted to use it for themselves. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't something you thought somebody else might like or something that you did it because it met certain requirements that somebody gave you. You did it because it was something you wanted to use yourself. And so, yeah. in a way, you're writing your own requirements, yeah. right? I mean, and as an engineer, you're thinking, this is, this is what I need as an engineering product. Right, and it's right. the shortest possible feedback loop from user to developer. Sure. And so it, it just achieved a level of elegance and simplicity that nothing else had at the time. So I'll, I will uh, just uh, respond by saying that I actually had one of my first jobs out of school was to work on a Unix system. And I actually wrote an automated test system with several other people at Burroughs in Boulder, which is the advanced systems group. And wow. Burroughs was tr at the time was trying to build its own distributed computing environment and uh, realized at some point that People were, were way ahead of them in other areas. So they just went and they got Unix and they put it on a computer and they were immediately in the game, right? Um, so there's just, that was, I think, another one of the, the big values of it. And when, as a person, for me, just kind of landing in at my first, you know, big operating environment to go work on, it was so easy because it was really consistent. That's something I always right. loved about it. And that comes exactly from what you said, Tom. Somebody designed it as a tool that they could use themselves. And so having it be consistent like that was just natural. Okay, now you make a transition though. Eventually here you're gonna get to Sun Microsystems and apparently you were one of the very first employees, number eight, is that number, true? Number eight. So honestly, how does that happen? And is it because you know Eric that you got in or was it no, some other I, way? No, I was, I was before Eric. Um, so, uh, but when I was at Amdahl working on Unix, that, that was a good three year, three and a half years of stuff, um, I'd go up to Berkeley to see Bill Joy because he, he was the center of the Unix universe on the West Coast and gave a lot of talks, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. we got to know each other you know, loosely. And it turns out when Sun was forming, Bill gave Scott McNeely a list of Unix people to cold call. You were on that list? I was on that list. <laughs> um, that says so much right there. That's, uh, that's actually that one of those uh, beautiful connections that you made along the way. Right. right. But then the other, the other half of that is uh, on the hardware front, you know, the Sun workstation hardware sure. came out of Stanford. Um, Stanford had a lot of relations with Xerox PARC. I right. had a brother working at Xerox PARC, another brother working at Xerox, not PARC, but also up there. I have brothers everywhere. It's a, yeah, it's so, uh, and at least one of those brothers showed up at Sun Microsystems, right? That's right, that was Bob. That's Bob, yeah. yeah. Um, but Dick, 
Dick is at Google now. He's, I call him the smart brother because he's, he writes books that no one can read and that kind of stuff. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I love it when, when you have a bunch of brothers who, or brothers and sisters who uh, all go into somewhat the same business and they, they sort of are even just very different businesses, but then they all do pretty well and they, you kind of compare notes, right? Yeah. So do you well, feel like you're, you said you had a big, uh, big family. Is that something that keeps going on now? You can get together over holidays? And oh, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the entire clan is headed to El Paso for Christmas. <laughs> so it should be 30-ish people. You said El Paso? Yeah, that's where I grew up. Great, El Paso, Texas. Um, good, we good. won't go into any politics, though. Yeah. Good place to be from. I like it's a good to place say. to be from. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so let's uh, let's let's go into this um, into Sun because Sun Microsystems is a fascinating uh, place, and we talk about it as as being kind of I always thought of it as kind of the unicorn of that of that particular uh, decade, at least at least in the mid to late '80s and maybe the early '90s. It was it right. just rocketed. Um, what were you kind of working on at that time, and, and was it an extension of what you were doing, or were you starting to kind of go into something that maybe you would do for the rest of your life? Well, there were two facets. Um, at, at Amdahl, as part of the whole Unix thing, I, I wrote an endless number of device drivers or mainframe type stuff. So I knew device drivers really, really well by the time I hit Sun. So I did a lot of device drivers at Sun. Um, one of my nicknames was Serial Port Master of the Universe because I, I, I was able to do things like run synchronous x.25 on, right. on the workstation series, serial ports. Um, but at Amdahl, even starting at Amdahl, I had gotten more into networking. Hmm. And the roots of that actually go back to the difficulties in communicating between the PDP-11 and the 370 at Princeton because it was just unfathomable to me how complicated that was. So you're finding ways. Actually, that's that's interesting. So even back then, there was an initial project, the the PDP 11 to 370 communication yeah. being so difficult that you were starting to build a layer. What's that layer like? You know that that thing you're talking about there. You're separating, you yeah, know, the machine from the the network, as yeah. it were. Well, it's kind of trying to understand every, everything down to the hardware. Because mm -hmm. I, I pretty much stop at the hardware. I understand bits, but I don't understand waves. Fair enough. Give me a zero or a one. Right. We'll go. We'll work. We'll work from that. My smart brother, though, he he thinks in analog in the frequency <laughs> domain. Right. <laughs> he can do that. Stuff. He can do the other. Okay. Uh, okay. So so here you're though at at Sun, and you've got a, you're doing device drivers, but didn't you do some other higher start to go into some higher level software higher at some level point? Things. So. A lot of a lot of networking of various flavors, and then of course the big the big original networking pro project that everyone knows about is NFS. Right. So I was one of the NFS architects, but not one of the core implementers. So your brother Bob was on. My that brother group. Bob managed the NFS yeah. group. So the NFS uh, is my first product management stop. At, when I got out of school, and I had been at Sun working in the uh, in corporate marketing, I'd done a data warehouse for them, but I kept wanting to go into the product side, and s for some reason they gave me a job in the, in the networking area. My first product was NFS. Wow. So that's how I, I really, I was so passionate about Sun 
because you could see some of the value of distributing applications. Now, when you were in that, in that place, you know, you, were you still building for really for yourself at that point? Were you thinking in terms of, I'm an engineer, I'm gonna build this to satisfy my needs? In a lot of ways, and, and of course the, the early market for Sun was all very technical, you know, computer-aided design, you know, scientists, that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. So we, we could relate to the users, and we, we were also trying to do heavy-duty <laughs> development on these machines, and we knew what a lot of the basic systems problems were. Did you so, ever take part in the Connectathon? Uh, no. Remember, remember little, we did these connectathons. That yeah. was a little later. Uh, but, so uh, I, I, I'm going to ask you a quick question about this before we move on. And this, when I got into that that at the NFS, they were asking, you know, guys were asking me to go out and and listen to customers and find out what the next generation would be. And those customers kept telling me, "We don't want any more. <laughs> it's like hard enough for us." to just get what we have right here, we want to go beyond it. So we ended up kind of taking that feedback and saying, well, it's the entire layer that we need to be focused on, not just this one component of the NFS. Right. Um, and so I, I moved on, I ended up moving on to network management, but it was kind of curious to me at the time, it really did feel like uh, the engineers were building things that they really felt like were necessary, right, for themselves. And I was wondering how to, to what extent that continued through your time when you were at Sun. And by the way, how long were you at Sun? I was there 12 years. 12 so I left years. in 94. 94. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, the thing about NFS and Unix is, you know, the files and file system are such a central part of Unix that NFS was really, really, really important. Yes. And then you get to all these other network services, and they're like, eh, not quite as important, and, and nobody quite agrees on exactly what they should be. So and, let's, let's, and, just stop, uh, let's just stop there for a second, because not everyone who listens to this particular podcast is going to be as grounded in the Unix environment as, as say, you yeah. or me, um, because of you know, having grown up in it. Um, that whole idea, though, of a file system and what NFS did. So NFS is the network file system. And the basic idea was that if you, you had you know, files that were on your local machine, but if you wanted to mount a file system that was on a remote machine, you could use NFS to just basically put in a URL of some kind. Was it a URL at the time? I forget exactly how it was, or was it just a, some well, sort uh, of a... A, I mean, a name in a file somewhere, and yeah. it would go out and find it, and then just mount it, and it looked like it was local. Right. It's was, it was crazy. It was so amazing. I mean, I think that's yeah. what people were really reacting to. Yeah. So, so the number one thing about NFS, and, and now it's generically called network attached storage, is it, it lets you share the files among multiple users, and that's a very important thing. So at the time, if you were a researcher and you wanted to share a big file with someone else, yeah. you'd have to put it on a disc and, or a yeah, tape you, and send it to them, yeah. right? And there was SneakerNet, right? You and SneakerNet, I mean, this is ridiculous, stuff, right? Yeah. Compared right. to, you know, I, you know, you're over in Finland and we're here and I just mounted and we go yeah. get it. I mean, it was kind of mind blowing as a, as a step forward yeah. at the time. Yeah. And then the other, the other important thing back then was just <laughs> the cost of storage was still so high that you didn't want to have to have a lot of copies of stuff. That's right, that's right. That has changed. Yeah, that's changed a lot. <laughs> but uh, I just saw a survey, I think it was IDC, saying, you know, network file systems are going to be an $11 billion market soon. So and pretty substantial still. And people, people 
keep trying to do a lot better job than NFS, but it turns out to be really hard, and, and largely because it's hard to get people to agree on exactly what it should do. Yeah, and that was, I think, going back to that issue of the requirements and why I kind of said, let's just stay where we are. It really felt like um, it was doing, it, was, it had created the value it needed to create. And any more attempts would create more contention than value. And so it was better to move on to some other place where there was a bigger gap. Right. So let's- And, and, and in some ways a, a victim of its own success. So NFS version four has been around for a long time, but a lot of people are still on NFS version three because it's good enough. Yes, exactly. Um, and it took a while to get to NF NFS version three because NFS two was good enough. Okay, so let's, uh, um, let's go into what you do after Sun. You, you end up as an entrepreneur in residence, is that right? That's right, with more David Allen Ventures. <laughs> so did they approach you or was that some, did, did you have a career counseling event somewhere and they said, oh, you should really be an entrepreneur in residence? Well, you, uh, you probably remember John Fiber. I do. So he was a buddy at Amdahl working on Unix. Right. And then he followed me to Sun and then he vectored off into the venture capital world and said, Tom, Tom, you should come out and we'll give you some funding. Like, you know, that was now, why do you think he did that? What was he thinking? He was thinking I was a smart guy. But you get, maybe those, get stuff done. Those, right? were, those were simpler days of venture capital when, when you, didn't, you didn't have to be a bloodthirsty capitalist to attract money. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, hopefully we'll get into that over the next uh, couple of stops here. Um, so they give you a little bit of money to go off and do something. What did you find? What were you looking for in the world as the sort of like jumped out at you as a, as a big unmet need? Well, at the time, uh, at Sun, I had been involved with all the, the efforts in higher speed networking. So FDDI and right. Fiber Channel and Hippie and lots of other obscure things. Uh, uh, and ATM was the one that I got most involved with. And this, this was a technology coming from the telcos of the world. And it was promised to be you know, the, the huge unifying everything about networking and switching, capable of carrying voice and video and blah, 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 blah. So, so I got swept up into the fever and I contributed some simplifying stuff to the standards. So I was very much into that. And then I came up with this idea of how to replace a lot of the complexity in the standard with, with IP networking, which, which at the time, Ypsilon was actually the first networking company to only do IP. Because mm. at the time, it was still Novell and Token Ring and Landman. So when was this, 94, 95? 94. Yeah. And so 1995 was when Windows 95 for, came out with TCP IP. And that, and that first, was a big step. The Netscape browser was 94. So that was the time when IP was just about to go. It was just at its, at its uh, inflection point, yeah. really. Yeah. yeah, so so Ypsilon. And so I Ypsilon then end up being high speed. Is that primarily what its value was? Just just giving people a well, bigger no, pipe? It's, it's basically, the it was competition for Cisco. So Cisco routers at the time were mm. ran the entire internet and most of the intranets. And, Ethernet switching was not as much of a thing back then. There's still a lot of routing instead of switching. Um, and the little known secret was that all of that routing was being done in straightforward software on wimpy little MIPS processors. <laughs> and 
even your run-of-the-mill Sun workstation could beat the pants off of a Cisco router. Whereas with ATM switches, it was orders of magnitude better performance. Yeah, so maybe you could help, uh, help again, my listeners here. Difference between a router and a switch. These are, there's some subtle differences in these um, technologies that were on the network at the time, right. right? There's bridges, there were all sorts of interesting yeah, little these pieces. Da these days, the same Broadcom chipset does both switching and routing and at the same speed, so there's no, no effective uh, performance difference. Uh, but back then, it was quite significant. But switching and, and routing, and so the difference so being subnets and, and yeah, that sort of thing? Switching was, switching was accelerated bridging. Bridging was a layer two melding of networks, and mm -hmm. we, it didn't scale as far. You couldn't build tens of thousands of machines. Uh, whereas routing with layer three, you could, that's how the internet was built. You could build that to arbitrary scale. Right, right. Connect people all over the world. Right. Okay, so Ypsilon takes off and then gets sold, right? Yeah, so... Exit! So Ypsilon was the hype machine of, of its time. <laughs> we, we, we were before the major dot-com bubble. Yeah, exactly. So, so we missed out on some of that crazy valuation. But man, we had the hype going. It was incredible. And we got best of show at Interop in 96, and I had my 15 minutes of fame and full-page spread in Japanese magazines and stuff like this. <laughs> Um, Don't you love that? You go back and you're like, what, what, what were they saying about me <laughs> or about this but, product uh, I was flogging? <laughs> but then the reality was the product didn't sell. Oh. Not because it didn't work, but because people didn't actually have that kind of performance problem. Oh. So we, we got traces from, you know, super huge aeronautical company that I won't name with the FDDI backbone. And we figured, okay, if anyone's got a busy network, it's got to be these guys. Yeah. It's like, you know, 3% utilization spikes. So you put the thing in and nothing would go faster, right? It's like, well, you didn't really need it. Interesting. So that's actually, that's a, that's a really good uh, example of, of we got to test this thing. You know, the, we have to test the idea, the market idea, yeah. before you, before you but dive also, in. Also, we were going head on with Cisco. So their entire sales force was lined up mm. to kill Ypsilon. So do you end up selling it, selling it to someone though? So you sold it to? Yeah, we, we sold Nokia. it to Nokia. Nokia, yeah. And no, Nokia was coming from the telco world where ATM switching reigned supreme. Absolutely. And so, <clears throat> and so the conversations with them when they were first approaching us were a little awkward because by that time we had figured out that nobody really needed ATM switching. They didn't have that, that performance problem and ethernet switches were coming and routers were moving into hardware. So it, it was gonna be a very different world. And we, we were pretty much uh, changing into a firewall company at that point, mm. which actually did pretty well. But it turns out what Nokia really wanted was IP expertise. So it took us a while to figure out that, oh, they didn't want A10, they want IP. They so want I was like, cool, we're all <laughs> so over that. Right? So there you were. Okay, so at some point though, the, you, the bug gets in you and now you're gonna do another one, right? Yeah, so well, you're back to more David Al. You're going to do another stint, and then they're going to you're yeah, going to figure it, out the next it, one. It was quite a while. So I, I did three years with Nokia. Okay. Which is, was a great company, and that that was when Nokia was king of the world, the most valuable company in Europe. Yeah. In the year 2000. Yeah. They inter They uh, they did some interesting things. I was at GeoWorks uh, when they started the Nokia 9000 project. Yeah. yeah. Uh, really, really groundbreaking. Um, product in smartphones, right, before anyone else. Yeah. 
So they were very much on top of the world then. Yeah. Uh, you got a great experience. Yeah. 2000 comes. What did you see in 2000 with the, with the boom, or boom bust? Well, the bust. It, it was ugly. It was ugly. Um, and probably by the time 2001 rolled along, that's when we were having layoffs, you know, even in my little group. Sure. And nothing was fun anymore. So I finally, you know, retired for the first time. <laughs> how, I, did, how did that go? It went okay. I, I, I had my little office in downtown Palo Alto, and I did. Do you have any retirement stories? You know, your office in Palo Alto, you know, uh, what do you? Not much. I, you know, I, I, I was consulting with my VC friends, yeah. getting occasional money, living the life, you know, whatever. But it, it just got boring. Coffee in downtown, uh, downtown Palo Alto, yeah. right? Yeah. At the time, my kids were in school, so I, it's not like I could travel the world or anything. No, I know. You, you, you can always say, well, you know, I was a good dad. Yeah. Right? yeah. There's something to be said about that. The, the kids do remember. Um, okay, so that didn't last, though. Apparently, that didn't yeah, last. Yeah, so I got, I got the bug. And I went to talk to John again. So, okay, here, here's a million bucks of seed money. Go figure out what you're going to do. And that led to? That led to a company called Netillion, which no one has ever heard of. And what, why is that? What's going on at Nantillion? Well, we, we started out doing uh, distributed shared memory on 10 gigabit Ethernet. And 10 gig Ethernet was barely existing at the time. It wasn't really practical. And distributed shared memory turned out to be a really bad idea, just in general, uh, for most cases. Yeah. And it turns out there were two other companies that were already doing the same thing, right. which we didn't find out until later. One of those is still around today, Scale, Scale MP. Oh, interesting. Out, out of Israel. Interesting. And I'd give them credits for surviving. So um, what's interesting about this is sometimes you'll go in and you'll see a technology that you think needs to happen, right? Yeah. And, you, and it's fair that you may see it needing to happen because you are seeing the problem even before it becomes a problem. Um, I think that's a, that's a common thing here in Silicon Valley, at least in the, old, in the older school when... Uh, when money was flowing in a different way than it does today. Right. Um, but because uh, during that time, there was a lot of engineer solving. A lot of it was engineers solving problems. And now uh, Natillion then becomes what next? And it's Nuova is, is comes well, next? Uh, or how did that, how'd that work out? After, after thrashing around with Natillion for a while, you know, uh, more David Al made it clear we weren't going to get more funding and so we, we tried to sell the, the team of engineers we had, which was a great team. Um, and so we visited a bunch of companies. Yeah. One, one of those was Cisco, who uh, you know, didn't really hate me in spite of the Ypsilon experience. Um, they and, never really hate you. They just, yeah. they're a rival, right? Um, and actually, Mario, Mario Mazzola, who was you know, big cheese at, at Cisco, head of development, I had met him. On a previous occasion, he asked me to come in and do some consulting back during during my retirement. Yeah. Um, and then it turns out that he and his his gang, known as MPLS, Mario, Mario Prime Luca Sony, <laughs> and MPLS was also the competitor technology to IP switching <laughs> from Ypsilon. Um, they were they were starting a spin-in for Cisco, so oh. they they were leaving Cisco, wanted to do their own thing. And it would probably become a spin-in for reasons we could go into. But um, so they called me up because they heard I was shopping this thing, and we talked. And 
ended up bringing the entire uh, Natillion team to form the nucleus of Nuovo Systems. Yeah, so, so does Cisco come in with uh, product management saying, hey, this is what we want to build? Absolutely not. Really? So what, what happened was we decided, you know, as, at Nuovo, we decided that we could build a 10 gig ethernet switch very cost effectively because we hired the best, right? Right, right. Um, and so we talked to Cisco about, you know, so we're gonna build this killer switch. You want you want to sell it for us, and oh by the way, we can recruit anyone at any time from Cisco, because we are who we are. And so they had to do a deal to structure the spin in just to keep us from recruiting all their good people. <laughs> right, and that and that was kind of preordained, right? It was clear. Sure. Um, and that's why the exit becomes Cisco. At right. The so end. so that. It took you know six to nine months of negotiation, and then it became a very boring startup because there was no risk anymore. Mm. It was a lot of execution, but no no market risk or sales risk or any of that. Right, right, um, right. But then what a lot of us wanted to do, almost everyone wanted to do, was not just build a switch, but build servers mm. that were somehow more deeply integrated with networking. Interesting. And then that, that was a much bigger step for Cisco. And what were you thinking about in terms of market problem at the time? You know, what was that? Why, why make a, um, a server that is tightly coupled with the network? Um, Are you going for speed? Are you going no, security again, simplicity? It's, it's management, it's management simplicity. Yeah, that's the big thing. And at the time, the IBM Blade Center was the epitome of servers. Mm -hmm. And networking on that was quite the kludge. There were you know, 47 different options from different vendors and yada right. yada. So it, it was clear that could be done a lot better. Got it. Um, so that, that became Cisco UCS. And that took a, another long series of negoti negotiation with Cisco to get them to agree to enter this business. <laughs> and I, I recall vividly one customer meeting where we explained to the customers that, you know, okay, Cisco is going to enter the server business. And what, what do you think of this? And the customer is like, well, do you mean Dell servers or HP servers? They couldn't even conceive of a Cisco server. A Cisco server. Right. So it, it, there was a lot of interesting obstacles. That's, that's really interesting. Okay, so eventually, though, you're, you're here at DriveScale. So what, how did that transition happen? So DriveScale starts in, when, 2013? Yeah. And so now you're thinking again about a problem. Right, that not everyone in the world is going to understand or even see. So, what what did you see uh, in that time that that prompted DriveScale? Well, so uh, my co-founder is Satya Nishtala, who actually I, I pulled out of Sun to join me at Natillion, and then we went on together to Nuova and Cisco. Uh, and he's a fantastic hardware guy. Um, but we were looking at the space of what was going on with servers in in the time frame of you know, the later part of my Cisco era. And it was things like uh, Hadoop coming out of Yahoo that, that did this distributed computing on totally commoditized servers. Mm -hmm. I mean, these things were dirt cheap. Exactly. But it didn't matter if they fell apart after 100 hours of usage, it just kept running. Um, and so that was clearly a really interesting trend to watch as the scale out and distributed computing you know, done right finally. Mm. Um, and what would that do to the server business? 
And it was clear that, that UCS was the last of the gold-plated servers. Right? You wouldn't be able to charge anything like that. So, so looking at the space, we started to think, well, how, how can somebody add value to that space and make money? Right, because now everything's commoditized. Right. Right, so now there must be a different problem to solve, right? right. So what's that problem? Well, so the interesting thing is how do you make it more commoditized? Right, because mm -hmm. that's, that's where the momentum is. And the clear complexity was that the servers themselves were just too many and too various, you know. You can go to the HP website and find 25 different models of servers before you configure them. Yeah. Right, and they all have space for different numbers of hard drives or flash drives or PCI slots and, you know, it's crazy. And, so, and some of it's deliberate, just shelf space thing like a grocery store and some of it, they just don't know how to do it differently. But what if you could just get rid of all that stuff from the server? You could make the server a lot more commoditized. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what would it take to do that? It would take really high-speed networking. Well, guess what? We have really high-speed networking. And it would take a lot of software to plug things together. And so that, that was what the opportunity was. Great. So uh, progress now? What do you think is going to happen here in the next 12 months? What do you, what do you see? Is there... Uh, maybe you're not a public company, right? So we no, and we're, we're, we're not giving guidance to anyone here. Yeah, so it, it's been a battle because we, we're at a layer making the hardware more efficient, and that hasn't been a top-of-mind problem for a lot of people, especially since we've been in this economic boom for 10 years where yes. pe people spend money on crazy, stupid things. That's right. Um, so it's been disappointing in our growth, but we, we now have some gigantic companies in the pipeline who are very, very interested. So once we land one of those elephants, it's going to be a very different story. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how, the again, a lot of these, you know, there's pendulum shifts in the way they, the operations are going on internally at these companies, and so they may yeah. be in a different place. The other, the other thing is where... Where that operations, you know, yeah. it's really an operational issue, isn't it? And we're, uh, we're optimizing hardware, so we make it cheaper and more flexible. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, everyone's been moving to the cloud where they have no control over the hardware, right? So, Absolutely. so our, our customers are the cloud operators or the guys on-prem who want their operations to be more like a cloud. Yeah, that's And so this, that, that puts us in a minority and also makes us very unpopular with the venture capitalists. Who are yeah, so I... I Try not to interject too much of my product management thinking into these conversations, but uh, I have some ideas there. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to, though, uh, the Sun Microsystems days. And, you know, all of these projects that you've done since, these, you know, these big startups that, you know, that keep going, keep coming for you, um, happen because you've met some people along the way, don't they? I mean, you, there are people you, a lot of these are people you met at Sun. Do you, do you see a... Um, you know, a, a just this, a huge network that's come out of uh, out of Sun, and do you know a lot of these people still? Oh yeah, um, it's a it's a whole Sun family out there, and I, I don't know if you went to the recent Sun reunion. No, I didn't. But, but it was awesome. I mean, it was, it was awesome. Yeah, like a thousand people, and they they all love Sun. And uh, we were pretty passionate about it yeah. at the time. And it it was an ethical company. It, it didn't go out of its way to screw people over, you know that kind of stuff. So. It put. It was a fascinating experience for me. I um, remember just being very passionate about explaining the value of distributed computing at the time, yeah. right? And the democratization, as it were. 
and the ability for, uh, for individuals to communicate with each other around the world. And I could see it directly. And it was very, it was very exciting. And I just loved the workstation, this beautiful you know, graphical workstation that we had on our desk was so amazing and so cool. Right. Um, it's, it's amazing also how quickly it changed, right? Yeah. One of, the, one of the things I'm proudest about with the workstations is how reliable they were, mm. which, you know, and most of that's a, a software thing because hard, hardware is relatively easy to make reliable. Um, but I, I think some of that was because the, the early people at Sun were coming from big computers you know, I came from the mainframe world. A whole lot of people came from the Vax world, yeah. where things had to be reliable because they were freaking expensive. <laughs> um, whereas at the same time, the PC revolution was going on, and people were really proud if they could build a computer and have it run for an hour, kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, and they were super. That was all about cheap. It was all yeah. about cost and, so, uh, and so, price so points. So even now, I see people on Twitter who are finally decommissioning their son after 18 years of uptime and that kind of thing. Yeah. Do you remember the, the earthquake? Oh, we, yeah. we were all, we were all at, uh, at, in Mountain View for the 89 earthquake, weren't we? Yeah. I mean, I was. I, I was on my way home early for some reason that day. Yeah. In, in, in my post-IPO Porsche. Yeah, right. And uh, <laughs> the, the car the is The car shaking. is shaking all over the place. I, I actually pull out, pull out, pull off, get out of my car, I'm looking at my car and some guy yells at me, it's an earthquake, you idiot. <laughs> yeah, that's what exactly right. Um, it was an earthquake. So what I remember from that was um, somebody, somebody goes and gets up off the, first of all, my, yeah, that huge um, K, uh, CRT, you oh, know, yeah, that must yeah. have weighed 50 pounds, yeah. moved 12 inches on my desk. Wow. That was intense. And... Uh, I look around and I, I think it was Lou Del Zampo was standing in the, in the one of these tilt-up buildings where it has the aluminum frame door, and he's in there like it's going to protect him. I'm like, that's not going to protect you. <laughs> but, but the thing dies down, everything shuts off, and then, like 30 minutes later, the power comes back up, the servers come back up, and the whole network just rebuilds its, you know, how it does, sort of naturally builds itself and finds the other computers and it just, all of a sudden we're back to normal. And for me, that was a moment where I realized, God, the internet is the most amazing thing because in the way it was designed, it's extraordinarily resilient. Right. And so that's a testimony to, to what you guys were up to. Um, Anything else you want to share with us today about the, you know, the past and the present and the future of networking? And where do you think the, the where do you think we're going next, right? What do you, when you when you look out there, what's like the, the next big problem to solve? Well, I think the, the inter-cloud networking and networking within Kubernetes are both very complicated things that that need some simplicity. They're not something I've spent a lot of time on though, so. Well, I'll have to go and find out uh, if there's a, a real problem there. Yeah. Um, I'll yeah. let you know. But, you know, nothing, I, you know, the thing I like to do is simplify things, but sometimes the world just doesn't care. And so that's, that can be a failing as well. So, you know, it's hard to. It's not a failing on your part. It's just a not yet. Yeah. Just think of it as not yet. 
they'll eventually get the problem. And the problem will be big enough, they'll come back to you. I do think that's, that a lot of that happens in what we do. There was, um, there was a uh, project I worked on at Cisco. Uh, yeah. my, my latter days at Cisco being part of the huge company and investing nicely. Yeah, I, I just don't fit in well with huge companies. So I, I started up a project which became the VFIO subsystem in Linux. Okay. And that, that's now the basis of all kinds of virtual machine and GPU assignment, yada, 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 yada. So it's, it's quite amazing to see where, where that's gone. And I, I, I was just kind of doing it in my spare time for, for fun. So there's some projects out there that are going to keep coming back to us. Yeah. Um, are you writing your memoirs yet, or are you going to do another startup here at some point? I've, I've managed to spit out like two or three memoir-type blog entries, and that, that's probably much been it. So we can already we can share the links with people if they really want to go into yeah, it. Yeah. Um, that would be cool. We should do that. Okay, Tom, this was really a pleasure. And yeah, uh, I, I should spend more time down here in, uh, in Mountain View, Sunnyvale area, so I can talk to you guys. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you. All right.